The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sherry, for reading that passage for us this morning. Again, if we haven't met, I'm Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Cool Springs. It's good to be with you all uh, today as we go through this passage. I, I wrestled with this passage a lot this week. Um, I had a moment where I was, I was in sermon prep mode and uh, kind of had to scoot myself back from the table and, and feeling angry at this passage. Um, I don't get angry at the Bible very often. And you heard the passage just read. You may be wondering to yourself, like, what in that is there to be angry at? And uh, I, I just was feeling like the Lord was, was revealing some sin in my own life uh, in terms of just how I regard people I disagree with. Um, and then also kind of feeling like that's part of the angle that I want to take with this passage is... is dealing with this whole concept of, of appealing up when we feel like we're facing injustice, when there's some kind of injustice happening. What do you do with that? How do you walk faithfully and well 
uh, in that. And so let me frame it um, by uh, getting in the way back machine and going back to 1991, uh, particularly to um, the, uh, the movies that came out in 1991. 91 was kind of a good year for movies in a lot of ways. That's the year we got JFK, Silence of the Lambs, Terminator 2. Uh, and, then, and then there was this, this kind of sleeper at the time, I guess, uh, called Hook. Are you familiar with the movie Hook? So if you're unfamiliar, Hook is kind of a sequel to Peter Pan. Uh, it's a Robin Williams movie where he plays Peter Pan, only he doesn't know he's Peter Pan because instead what he is in the movie is he's uh, a grumpy, cynical man who's got a hard edge to him now and is just kind of moving through the world um, angry. Uh, and Captain Hook magically shows up and captures his children and he now has to travel to Neverland to rescue them and to face off against this old nemesis that he has completely forgotten about. He's blocked it out of his mind. And there's a point in the movie where early on, where they're visiting Granny Wendy, uh, as in Wendy from Peter Pan, and she hears him lashing out at his family, his wife and his kids, because they're distracting him from this really, really important phone call that he's on to deal with a big problem at work. And he loses his temper. And she sits him down gently and she puts her hands on his face. And she says these words to him. She says, Peter, you've become a pirate. That's a poignant moment in that movie. And it's a poignant moment now. Peter, you've become a pirate. And I think the reason that I, that scene rattles around in my head so much is because I feel like in this world that we live in, this is the pressure that we're constantly under. That we live in a world that wants to do this to us. That wants to take away any sense of wonder, curiosity, childishness, and replace it with this hard edge that's focused on achievement and control and being on the right side of things. And it reminds me of something that Vincent Van Gogh wrote in a letter to his brother. He was quoting somebody else, but he said this. He said, in most men, there exists a poet who died young, whom the man survived. I remember hearing that when I was 20 years old, reading that quote when I was 20 years old and feeling, Lord, praying, Lord, don't let that be me. Don't let me be the man uh, in whom the poet dies young and the man survives. And in my own life now, I see it. I see it all around me. I see it in me. I see so many things just kind of nibbling away at the edges, telling us to just harden our hearts and to become cynics and to become people who just identify our enemies and live with a world of enemies. One of the ways we harden to this world comes by how we respond to injustice. And there's a knife's edge here. Because on the one hand, if we do nothing at all about the injustice in the world, we will become desensitized to other people's sufferings. And on the other hand, 
If we over-respond to injustice by taking up crusades disingenuously, meaning we attach ourselves to causes that we don't honestly really care that much about, but we link ourselves to them because we like the feeling that comes with being on the right side of something or being part of something that appears important and therefore makes us appear important. That's how you become a pirate, is we become people who then become divisive. We become us versus them cynics who turn everyone that we have any suspicions about into one-note cartoon characters where we look noble and they look bad. In our day, many people attach themselves to causes for justice, but not everybody does so because they actually care as much as they project. And one way to tell if that's the case is you will see a lack of compassion or charity or believing the best in those that you deem to be, quote, on the other side. This is how Peter became a pirate. And so can we talk about this today? Part of my trepidation is I feel like in talking about this, I will become that cartoon character for you. But can we talk about this today? Can we talk about how to maintain an honest view of ourselves as we seek to walk in the full counsel of Micah 6.8, which says, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? He has told you. He has shown you. It is what? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And if we ever find ourselves in a position where all we're doing is that first one, where we're just trying to do justly, but we are neglecting the other two, loving mercy and walking humbly with our God, we may be well on our way to becoming pirates. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through the passage, talk about what's happening, talk about how Paul navigates the injustice that's being done to him, the way that he appeals up rather than sinking down into the dysfunction of it. And then I want to discuss the concept of appealing up as Christians, because it applies to where we find our own righteousness and our standing before the Lord. So let's walk through the text first. At the end of today's text, which we read, you see Paul standing on trial before Festus, saying that he is appealing to Caesar. He wants Caesar to hear his case. That appeal is then granted to him, and the reason that it's granted to him is because by law it had to be granted to him, because it was the law as a Roman citizen. And so Governor Festus hears this, and he says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. Now let's talk about Festus. He's new. He's just now replaced Felix. He came to power, and when he came to power, he had one pretty urgent priority, and that was to restore peace with the Jewish leadership that he governed. And he had to do that because Felix had ruined it. And so three days after taking power, Festus travels to Jerusalem, and he meets with the chief priests there, and the chief priests ask Festus to reopen Paul's case. And specifically what they ask him is they say, would you bring Paul to Jerusalem here for trial? 
And the reason they asked that is because they had this plan, and the plan was to ambush him along the way and kill him before he ever got there. Now, we don't know if that plan was clear to Festus or not, but here's the thing about Festus. Festus understood that he was in a little bit of a quandary and that he had to be shrewd because on the one hand, he wanted to curry favor with the Jewish leadership because Being at peace with them meant that he would be at peace with many of the people that he governed, which was important for him in his job. But he also needed with them to establish his authority. I'm the governor now. I'm in charge. You don't boss me around. And so what he did is he came up with this compromise. And he said, listen, you want to hear Paul's case again? We can hear Paul's case again, but we're going to do it in Caesarea. You're welcome to come with me when I go back and we can try his case there. And if you have a case against Paul, I promise that I will listen to it. And so the next week, Festus returned to Caesarea and Paul's accusers traveled with him. And so they have this hearing and they begin to rehearse these charges that they brought against Paul before in his previous child trial. They introduce a couple new ones. And Paul offers the same defense that he'd given before, saying, I have not committed any offense, not against the law of the Jews, not against the temple, certainly not against Caesar. But as with Felix, Festus was primarily concerned with peace with the Sanhedrin more than he really cared about his relationship with Paul. And so he says to Paul, in an attempt to curry favor, He says to Paul, look, look, if the charges are as baseless as you say, would you like me to take you to Jerusalem to hear the case? And this is where we see that version of the Apostle Paul that happens every once in a while in the book of Acts, where he's not the apostle to the Gentiles going around and doing the best that he can and getting beaten and left for dead or thrown in prison. Instead, you have the Paul who's standing up to the authorities and saying, I am a Roman citizen and you are obligated to treat me as such. And that's what happens here when Festus says, look, if you think your case is so tight, how about we go to Jerusalem and we just have it out there? And Paul responds with indignation. And this is my paraphrase of what he says. You you read the text already. You can look back over it. But this is my interpretation of what Paul is saying. Paul says to Festus, are you asking me what I want? I'll tell you what I want. Right now, I am standing in Caesar's tribunal. Right now. This is where I ought to be tried. I've done nothing wrong against the Sanhedrin, and you know it, and Felix knew it. That's why I've been in his jail for two years, because there is no case. If I have done anything that warrants death in the eyes of Caesar, I will not try to escape this fate. But there is no basis for the Sanhedrin's case against me. And if there is no basis for their case against me, nobody has the legal authority to hand me over to them because I am a Roman citizen so I appeal to Caesar and I wonder what went through Festus' mind when he heard that happen because on the one hand Paul is showing him up a little bit 
And on the other hand, it's this kind of handy little bit of providence that falls into his lap. Because for Paul to appeal to Caesar means that Festus doesn't have to hand Paul over to the Sanhedrin, nor does he have to deal with Paul in his own court. So his problem just kind of went away. And so he confers with his tribunal and he says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now I'm going to give you a quick historical note and I'm not going to say anything more about it until a couple weeks from now, but I'm just going to drop this little bit. This took place around 59 AD. We know who Caesar was in 59 AD. When Paul appeals to Caesar, Paul is appealing to Nero. Let's put a pin in that. He appeals to Nero because as John Stott says, Paul saw clearly that he could hope for justice and for acquittal only from the Romans, not from the Jews. Because he had committed no offense against the Jews, as Festus knew perfectly well. If he were guilty of a capital offense, he was willing to bear the penalty. But if the Jewish accusations were false, no one, not even the procurator, had the right to hand him over to them. And so he only had one option. I appeal to Caesar. There's a legal name in Roman law for what he did. It's called the provocatio. And what that is, is a law that protected Roman citizens from, quote, summary punishment, execution, or torture without trial, from private or public arrest, and from actual trial by magistrates outside of Italy. So a Roman citizen could always appeal up. And so that's what Paul chose to do. He appeals up. Now, what happens when you appeal up? There are some attorneys in the room. You know what happens when you appeal up right? The charges are treated with a greater kind of gravity because there's a finality to them. That's the other part, is the ruling that comes down has greater finality. If you try a case in the Williamson County Courthouse, it's going to be different than if you try that same case in the Supreme Court, right? Because if you try it in the Williamson County Courthouse and we don't like how that goes, you can appeal up. But when you go to the Supreme Court and that happens, there's gravity all around and it's final, right? So these things happen. So Paul appeals up. And so to Caesar he shall go. And that'll be the rest of the book of Acts is him getting there. Now we look at this and we say Paul is being treated with injustice here. He's not guilty. He's been in prison for two years. He's been jailed. He's being mistreated. Nobody's believing him. Nobody's really listening to him. And so he's there locked away, and we think this is an injustice. Listen, Paul is not the first person in God's providence to stand falsely accused and then to have to wait to be delivered. When you look at Scripture, you see this over and over again. You've got Daniel in the lion's den. You've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have Joseph whiling his time away in Pharaoh's prison wondering if the cupbearer is going to come to his defense as he promised that he would. It carries into modern times too. People all around the world have been imprisoned for sharing and sometimes even just having faith in Jesus Christ. And they have to wait on the Lord. 
They have to wait on the Lord while their names are being slandered, while their lives are being stalled. And listen, brothers and sisters, we should care about this. We should care about this very much. We should pray about this. We should act to promote justice. Yes, he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly. And the Psalms deal with this. The Psalms talk about the anguish that comes with seeing the innocent afflicted while the wicked just seem to dance. Psalm 73 describes the wicked this way. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their hearts overflow with folly. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And so sometimes it can seem like The unjust just run with such freedom and power that justice will never come and we can begin to despair and we can begin to say, Lord, how long? And we can begin to say, Lord, use me in this. And then the psalmist speaks to this despair and he says, when I thought about how to understand this, it just seemed like a a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and there I discerned therein. Behold, those who are far from you will perish. From the beginning of scripture to the end, the message is clear. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The Lord will deal with all manner of wickedness and injustice with perfect judgment. That is a guarantee. And we say yes. Amen. But what do we do in the meantime? This is the part of the sermon where I'm asking you, don't hear what I'm not saying. (laughs) Because I'm going to say some things that might be hard. What do we do in the meantime? We pursue Micah 6.8. We do justly. We love mercy. We walk humbly with our God. We speak, we act, we show up for others. And all of this is important, but we live in such an activated age right now when it comes to standing in defiance against injustices real and perceived that as Christians we can lose the ability to be circumspect about our own limitations and sins, including the limitations of our own perspective. And we can lose it so much so that we can begin to be offended by the counsel of Scripture itself. Scriptures like 1 Peter 2, which tells Christians this, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We can hear a passage of scripture like that 
and say, he was reviled, but he didn't revile in return. He suffered and he didn't threaten. We can feel like, well, that's no way to go about justice. We need to be strong. We need to be defiant. We need to be a, a, a coalition, right? Because we want to get in there and we want to fix it. We want to fix the brokenness that we see and the brokenness that we think we see. And some of what we see is genuine brokenness on its surface. It's apparent. It's real. It's there. There's no debate. But when we start to reduce what we're seeing down to cartoonish characterizations of, quote, the other side, what's the risk we run? The risk is we run the risk of reviling in return. We run the risk of having deceit in our mouths when we talk to others about our enemies. We live in a culture right now that is trying to produce for us lists of enemies. Hundreds of enemies. You don't have a hundred enemies. I'm sure you don't. But we want to know who they are so that we can be mad at them. In Paul's case, he could clearly see who his enemies were. He could clearly see what was going on. The players in Caesarea and Jerusalem that were holding this court for him, he could see their pirates. They're pirates. And Festus is asking, do you want to come down into this mess and join us here? And Paul says, no. No, I don't. They're pirates. They have this side that they're contending for, and there's no sense of justice, and there's no sense of mercy, and there's certainly no humility. And Paul has this honest view of his situation. He has this honest view of himself. And so I want to ask this question of us by way of application here. How do we pursue justice while maintaining an honest view of ourselves? Because in the cultural moment we're in, this isn't easy. Jesus commands us, another passage we can get offended by, take the log out of your own eye before you examine the speck in somebody else's eye. But it's so easy to see the speck in their eye when they're a cartoon. Peter tells us, don't revile when you're reviled. And when we're lied about, don't speak deceitfully in return, which we can do by knowingly lying, but also we can do this by asserting certain things to be true when we don't know if they are or not. That is a way for deceit to be found in our mouths and we can run with a false narrative where this world is just full of enemies. And in so doing, what happens to us? We begin living the life of a pirate, full of enemies. Often in our pursuit of justice, we can become unjust ourselves. How does that happen? Well, let me describe a way this happens. When someone hears you defending your position and starts to push back even a little on your narrative, you dismiss them out of hand. And you say, you must be on the other side. 
and you being on the other side means you're to your core, you're unjust and untrustworthy. And we can do this, it's convenient. We can do this without listening and we can do this without a love for mercy, without a humble posture for, before God. We don't need those. And instead what we do is we actually just flip the injustice that we say we so despise and then we begin treating others with that same searing injustice. Do you see it? Let me give you an example. This can happen in a lot of areas of our lives where we just take a group of people and we say, I've sized this entire group of people up and they're all like this. If you school your children in this way, you're like this. If you vote for this party, you're like this. If you have this much more money than I have, you're like this. And we do it with people in positions of authority. Right? We can do this with people in positions of authority. There's a fine line between struggling to trust people in positions of authority. There's lots of reasons to struggle to trust people in positions of authority. Authority gets abused, abused all the time. But there is a fine line between struggling to trust people in positions of authority and declaring all people in positions of authority to be untrustworthy. Those are not the same thing. And if you do this, if you declare all people in positions of authority to be fundamentally untrustworthy, what you're doing is you're either negating the validity of the concept of authority altogether, which, by the way, is a profoundly authoritative position to take, right? Or you are behaving with prejudice against all people in positions of authority simply because of their position, are we sufficiently uncomfortable? Can we see what we do to ourselves? This is how Peter becomes the pirate. This is how we become unjust ourselves. Do justly, yes. Give yourselves to it. But also be circumspect about your passion for justice. Ask, are you truly motivated by a concern for the mistreated or are you just angry? You can certainly have both. You can certainly be angry, but the question is this, are you being honest before the Lord about your anger? Are you? Because without mercy and humility, your pursuit of justice may actually just be wrath in disguise. And that's the strongest thing I'm gonna say. Without mercy and humility, your pursuit of justice may actually just be wrath in disguise. How can you tell if you're being honest before the Lord about this? You will care about mercy for everybody. You will walk in humility before God knowing that your only hope in this life is to appeal up. That you need mercy. I think about the prophet Isaiah, which we read in our confession of sin. And I think about him as this prophet who's called by God to speak to his own people a message that is confronting horrible injustice and corruption. There is no question that part of Isaiah's work was to confront horrible injustice and corruption. They were desecrating times. And he's caught up in this vision 
where he sees the throne room of God. And what is his response? Is it, yes, now I see the power by which my enemies will be vanquished? No. His response is, woe to me, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah was willing to go speak God's words to a violent and broken world. And when he encountered the God who was sending him, his posture was immediately circumspect and humble. I'm a man of unclean lips. He was undone. And then what did he do in response to being undone? He went on to deliver some of the hardest words in Scripture to one of the most corrupted audiences in Scripture. We can be all about justice, and the Lord can send us. Let's be honest about it. And let's love mercy and walk humbly with our God. We sing this morning, we sang already, before the throne of God I have a strong and a perfect plea. I have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Paul appealed to Caesar, when he appealed to Nero, he was not casting himself on the mercy of Nero. He was casting himself on the mercy of God, assured that the true case against him, the one where his guilt was sure, it already had a ruling that wasn't decided by his righteousness. Christ, who took Paul's sin upon himself on that cross, has robed Paul and all who trust in him in his righteousness so that when the Father looks upon the Christian, all he sees is the righteousness of Christ. And so we appeal up. Take all of your anger and all of your fear and all of your contempt for injustice, and all of your sorrow, and all of your weariness of soul, and all of your longing for a better world, and appeal up where the charges are treated with infinitely greater gravity, and where the ruling handed down has infinitely greater finality, up to where the judge is God himself who rules with perfect justice and mercy. And then do what he has called you to do, what is good and what is required of you to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. Let's pray. Father, teach us what it means to walk in humility before you. Teach us what it means to love mercy. Teach us what it means to pursue justice as people who need the righteousness of another for our own hearts to be declared righteous before you. Uh, Lord, would you use us to bring about good things in this world? And would you deal with us honestly and show us back to ourselves? And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.